It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are coming to you with one hell of a historical true crime tale. I almost said that right. <laughs> <laughs> we were close enough. I'll take it. So, yeah, um, we have quite a story for you today brought to us by one of our um, pals in the Facebook group or page, one of the, uh, somewhere, uh, Mindy Grinder Lapia. This is about her great, great aunt. Martha. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's going to be, it, that's, that's got to be such a weird moment as somebody who's been studying my own genealogy and trying to like put together my family tree. Sometimes you find these weird little things and you're like, huh. Like I discovered that two of my ancestors died in the Candlemas Massacre in 1692. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. And one of them, his wife, uh, she survived but was taken captive and taken to Canada, where she lived for three years before she was, as they put it, uh, redeemed, redeemed. Which is, I guess, they just they bring them back. From the dead or? No, from Canada. <laughs> I guess when you're brought back from Canada, you're redeemed. It's like getting baptized. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you... a, I'm a born-again Massachusetts and or wherever the hell they live. Well, <laughs> no, because think about it. Like, Canada is notorious for being, like, the nice country. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we should just send Americans to Canada for rehab. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then they can be redeemed. And then they'll come back and maybe they'll apologize once in a while. Oh, my God. Can we send all the Karens to Canada? <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> Those poor Canadians, they're going to be real mad at us. Real mad. Well, what are they going to do? Kill them with kindness. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, we have that tale for you. Don't forget about our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where we put up bonus episodes about cases that we find, some of which uh, are just dug up from the old newspapers that you you might not find anywhere else. Amber today told me a tale of a man who loved attention and telling stories. What was his um, little pseudonym he came up with for the newspapers? Oh, Slipped and Fell. <laughs> Slipped and Fell. <laughs> and then his friend, Far and Wide. Yes, it's very, very uh, wonderfully 30s, actually. That, that brand of humor. I, I can almost hear it in my head, the newspaper article, because <laughs> it just feels right. so 30s. And speaking of old newspaper articles, uh, I have been putting up stuff on the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter again. So if you're on any of those, um, what I'm doing is just putting up weird shit I find in the old newspapers. And it is fun and hilarious. Um, uh, there's a story uh, I put up of a four-year-old boy who was kidnapped and then said that he escaped his captors by wriggling out of his bindings. As as somebody with a small boy, uh, yes, yes, you <laughs> cannot keep them in one place for long, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we put up a story of a man who killed his daughter but was found not guilty because um, she was ugly. Yep. You know, good stuff like that. Um, the, the policemen who all, um, did they shave their mustaches or did they refuse to shave their mustaches? I can't remember. I want to say it was refused to shave their mustaches. Because they hadn't been paid in like six months. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, uh, that's actually, you, you could go a little further with that protest. Well, and, and you know what? There are certain things that I have not shaved in at least six months. Yeah. And I feel like somebody should pay me. <laughs> same, same, same. So... 
do you want to talk about Martha Grinder? I do indeed. All right. So Martha Grinder was born in 1815. She married George Grinder in Louisville. Obviously, she wasn't born Martha Grinder. Uh, she became Martha Grinder. She was said to be, quote, keen, sprightly, and dashing. Uh, George did not get quite so many nice no, he words. Did not. <laughs> he got slow, easygoing, and simple minded, as well as rather deficient in force of character and intelligence. They they did not care for him too much. They really didn't. And uh, the newspaper said, I think this was from the newspaper. I love it because I feel like the, whoever wrote it in the newspaper, all these like descriptions of him, are like, these are big words. He's not going to understand them. <laughs> oh, you might be right. Um, the one thing that was said about them as a couple, the match was one of those in which extremes met. The lady possessing all the polish, strategy, and intellect, and the husband content to be merely passive and entirely submissive to her will. But George did have a, a bonus in that he came from a family with some property. Uh, he himself was a coal miner. And uh, I have a quote here about Martha. I'm going to give you half the quote, and I'm going to finish this quote later. Uh, she was said to be pretty caring. Quote, she would sit up half the night waiting upon a sick patient and bestowing every attention which kindness could suggest. And I'll give you the rest in a little while. <laughs> that quote kind of gives you whiplash. So in 1859, the same year that they had a daughter together, they moved to Pittsburgh. Woohoo, Pittsburgh. On their way there, they actually stopped at the Grinder Homestead in Westmoreland County. Now, while they were staying there, there, were, there was a weird occurrence or two. So Martha stayed home from church one Sunday and saw a thief prowling around the spring house with a bucket. Gasp! Not a bucket! She told the family her little tale when they got home, and then it happened again, but this time the thief got bolder and broke into the spring house. Now, the family checked out the spring house, and they're like, well, it's a mess, but I don't think anything's actually been stolen. They just ransacked everything. Um, but there were several rolls of butter lying on the ground outside the spring house. Yes, rolls of butter. I mean, however you want to store it, butter is a beautiful thing. I'll take it in any shape and size. It's really interesting seeing all the old measurements um, in, like, old-timey recipes and stuff like that. Like, I just learned that a gill is like a teacup. Oh. It's like four ounces. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a gill or a gill and a half. Okay. That, that might even be in my recipe for today, but I can't remember. So a few days after this little instant, the uh, Mr. and the Mrs. of the house figure out that they're both missing some money. Now, she had had some cash in a dress pocket that was hanging up, and that was gone. He had a pocketbook with $1,400 in it, and that was gone. That Ooh. is $51,000 in today's money. That is a lot of money in today's money, yeah. So Martha was the only person who had seen this thief lurking about. She gave a description of the robber, but no one had ever seen anyone like that in the neighborhood. So that investigation really ended before it even began. So they settle in Pittsburgh. At first, they lived down by the point in a ramshackle house. It was Hand Street then and is Ninth Street now. And um, then they had a maid. 
So this maid, her name was Jane Buchanan, and in February of 1864, she started working for the family. She was an Irish girl, 18 or 19. She had previously lived in Philadelphia, where her aunt lived, and had only moved to Pittsburgh three months prior. Now, within just a few days of starting this new position, Jane got ill very quickly. She had terrible, terrible stomach pains, and then she just died suddenly. I mean, she was a a girl in the prime of her life. She was healthy, and then next thing you know, she was gone. It was very strange. Uh, The authorities thought that this happened, quote, under circumstances which gave rise to the suspicion that she had been unfairly dealt with. You can just say, we think somebody murdered her, guys. Right? (laughs) Like, I know, it's what we get with the old-timey newspapers and stuff, but it just cracks me up. So uh, there was an inquest, but the coroner's jury came back with a verdict of death by natural causes. She was known to have had, or thought to have had, $50, and uh, that money just got up and walked away after her death. It's under just under $1,000 today. And there are also some valuables missing from her belongings, including some clothing. All right. So that was the Jane Buchanan incident. Going to kind of switch gears. They moved to a different area. It's a little bit nicer of an area than the ramshackle, obscure alley they were in before. And, but it sounds like this neighborhood, in addition to the time period combined, would be pure hell. Because this is the baby incident. And the baby incident comes with a lot of societal judging and pointing fingers at women. So, um, everyone knows, this is a quote from the newspaper, everyone knows that the progress of events, and that's in quotation marks, is closely watched, particularly by the matrons of a neighborhood. And where the visits of children, like those of angels, become few and far between... The fact is noted and becomes the subject of much quiet gossip. Now, that means they're watching to see how many babies you pop out. And if you stop popping out babies, they're going to talk about you. Yeah, because you're not doing your wifely duty and popping out 10 to 12 kids. Yeah, yeah. So that, that would... I'm not saying... I'm just saying that would make me a little murdery. Yeah, but, like, you're supposed to pop out kids until your uterus falls out in a train ride. Exactly, yes. That's what it's for. It's for popping out kids and then flying around in trains. Mm -hmm. That's what our uteruses do. (laughs) So, Martha, I mentioned the one child. They had a daughter who had been born in 1859. This is 1864. And then in 1865, still nothing yet had come. So the tongues, they were a-wagging. There was probably some clutching of pearls. A fainting couch might have been employed. We don't know. I would love a fainting couch. I need a fainting couch. Somebody buy me a fainting couch, please. No, I have enough awesome furniture. (laughs) I have the giant couch of giantness. I don't need any more couches. So apparently, everyone in the neighborhood found out uh, when Martha told a friend that she was going to be quote-unquote blessed again sometime in 1865. The family doctor did come to visit, But he was soon followed by the undertaker. Now, there's another version of this story. It's more sketched out, in which Martha made the acquaintance of a girl who was in trouble, you know. Mm. You know. She'd been blessed. She was in a family way. (laughs) She was in a family way. Um, A man had seduced her and then fled off to the West. Martha probably said, probably where his wife was, probably or one of his wives. Martha said, "Hey, honey, why don't you stay with us and I'll quote, 
this is how the newspapers put it, assume all the appearances and all the responsibilities and afterward adopt a child as her own. So she's basically going to put this girl up and then when the girl pops the baby out, she's going to take the baby and send the girl off. Uh, the young lady agreed, but after a very short time living with the grinders, she was moved to a boarding house for unspecified reasons. The way the newspaper put it was, it was evident this arrangement could not be carried out successfully. So either she and Martha didn't get along, or um, maybe this young lady had some of the stomach troubles that other people seem to have around Martha. Honestly, having been pregnant before, your spidey senses oh. are on, like, overdrive. Yeah, that makes sense. So she was probably like, something is not sitting right. If I give her my baby, I'm never leaving this house. I'll be buried in the basement. Like, yeah, yeah. peace out. Never mind. <laughs> so uh, the plan was for the girl to send a messenger over to the grinders when she had the baby. Now that message did come, and then Martha suddenly took ill and closed herself into the bedroom and sent for the doctor. But then another message came announcing the death of the infant. And uh, Martha said, bring it to me, dead or alive. She was said to lay the very picture of matronly anxiety. The doctor who attended the girl was let in on the secret, and he was like, you know, Martha can bury a baby probably better than the little girl than the young lady can. So they just kind of kept up this fiction that she had had a baby, and the baby died. When in reality, it seems like that was not the case. Uh, now, why would she do this aside from wanting a baby, wanting to you know, kind of stem the flood of comments from her neighbors, there was also this idea, and a lot of this, it feels like it's not really well sourced in the old newspapers, and this is the 1860s, it feels like a lot of this is just based on neighborhood gossip. So we really don't know if this is true, and it does get kind of outlandish, but it was said that Martha had a wealthy relative, an ex-governor who said he would gift $10,000 to any child she had. She had one child, but the word around the campfire was that the six-year-old daughter had also been procured rather than birthed by Martha. Oh. Uh, the story also alleges that the child actually belonged to the ex-governor relative, and he paid Martha to take the baby off his hands. So we really don't know, but this is called the bogus baby case, which is funny. Just, I love the, the way they put things. So, all right. We told you that they are in this new place, this neighborhood where it kind of seems like it's nice, but a little on the judgy side. And uh, they have some neighbors, James and Mary Car Caroline Carruthers. They're a younger couple. She was 22. Uh, he was, we don't actually know. James reported that as far as the neighbor thing con was concerned, I think they actually lived in the same house, just divided. Um, he said there was just a partition between them, not even like a full wall. Oh. I have no idea how this living setup goes, but there was a lot of going back and forth and interchange between the two families. James worked at a dry goods store on Federal Street. So they were from Newcastle, about 50 miles north of Pittsburgh, and just after getting married, they moved to the city. Mary Caroline and Martha were on, quote, the most friendly terms. 
Well, you'd almost have to be because they're almost like your housemates. You really, you're, you're, you're living in such close quarters. Even with that partition between you, that's not very much. It would seem like you would either have to, you know, get along or get out. Yeah, like, imagine, imagine that. Imagine that. Like, I don't think I could deal with that. We have such better living situations now. <laughs> a whole house to ourselves. But, like, even a duplex, you have a wall. You don't even have to see those people. Like... Yeah. It'd be like having a curtain up between you and your sibling when you share a room. Like, you can't get away from them. Yeah, it's not actual privacy. It's pretend privacy. Mm-hmm. So, they're close, these two, sort of. And so, being on the most friendly terms, Martha had Mary Caroline over for dinner on June 27th, 1865. Uh, I'm sure that Martha was a delightful host. She was, quote, noted for her sociability and kindness of her heart. They had peaches and cream. I'm not sure if that was the entire meal or the dessert. It sounds like the dessert, but you never know. I mean, it's the only thing they mention as far as the food was concerned that was consumed. So, I mean, I was looking in cookbooks from this time period, and it's definitely um, interesting. The one cookbook was What to Do with the Mutton. <laughs> Basically, how to handle leftovers. Okay. So, um... Now, James said his wife had been in excellent health until June 27th, and then she had, quote, vomiting, purging, spasmodic affection of the throat, burning at the stomach, nausea at the mouth, pain in the head. And James talks about how Mrs. Grinder, Mrs. G, as she will be called in some uh, publications, came over to help during the illness. She filled their tea kettle, which he then used to make tea and soup. Shortly after that, he got ill as well. Hmm. That's so strange. Such a weird occurrence. Whatever could it be? I do not know. He said, really thought I was going to die. My joints were so relaxed I could scarcely walk. And it felt like two pounds of hot lead in my stomach. That doesn't sound fun. Not at all. So he is at the store and Martha comes down and says, hey, your wife is sick again. And so James comes home, and sure enough, Mary Caroline is as sick as he is. The doctor comes and pretty much tells them right off, uh, y'all were poisoned. Yeah, I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah, I've seen this before, and there's, there's usually a lady like that living next door. <laughs> so, so Martha kept bringing them coffee and tea and food, just being neighborly, just being a good neighbor. Yeah. I don't know why the spidey sense is not tingling. If the doctor is like, yeah, you're being poisoned. Maybe you should stop accepting food and beverage from anyone. We've gone from actual red flags to actual crimes. <laughs> like, it's, it's not even a warning sign anymore. You are in the danger. You're not about to enter the danger. You are in it. <laughs> I'm in danger. <laughs> it's very much that, yes. So... She's bringing them all this food and stuff, being neighborly, and they each got sick immediately after partaking. As the illnesses continue, the doctor tells them, okay, so it's got to be something in the house. Because remember, you could also just be poisoned by the groceries you picked up. Truth. You see a lot of stories of entire families being wiped out by a single stew. And this is also summertime. The summertime complaint. That was the fact that a lot of people had meats and fishes that they would... 
let go for three, four days before they ate it again in the hot sure, summer this heat. Is fine. Absolutely, and no refrigeration. <laughs> so there were a lot more illnesses. So being poisoned didn't necessarily mean it's a person, although it's definitely in there as a possibility. <laughs> definitely there. So the doctor tells them, all right, you should go out into the country, get away from this and whatever is making you ill. They were planning to go the next night. James told uh, Mary Caroline to starve herself and see if that had a good effect. He threw out the food and coffee that Martha brought the next morning and pointed out to Mary Caroline that they both got sick whenever they ate her food or drank her coffee. Martha's, that is, of course. But when he makes tea and eggs, they're fine. Very strange. Hmm. Coincidence. They do get out to Newcastle and they feel better. He comes back to Pittsburgh and leaves Mary Caroline out there to recuperate. Now, it seems like the baby dying was also in this time period because it's just a few weeks after the onset of the illness that he finds out about Martha's deceased child. She asks him to go to the burial and he said, quote, she having been very kind to us, I thought it my duty to go and consented. And of course, the morning of the burial, he eats breakfast and drinks coffee at Martha's table. No, James, come on, dude. What uh, have we learned? Nothing, obviously. He said the coffee had a peculiar, sour, metallic taste, and of course, he was sick most of the day. Which has got to be brutal when you're like, it's the summer heat and you've got to go to a funeral. You're probably wearing like all black and it's just, oh, there's just so much terrible about this. You're not able to be at home. I hate it. I hate it all. When, I'm, yeah. when I feel bad, I want to be at home. I want to be where I'm most comfortable. So this goes on because, of course, his wife is gone, so he doesn't have anyone to prepare him meals. He would sometimes eat out, but she was like, Martha was like, no, I'll make you some dinner sometimes. So she'd invite him over, he'd eat, and then she'd say, well, let me know if you get sick tonight and I'll take care of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like she expects him to get sick from eating her food. How is he not catching on to this? Again, the, the summer complaint also dysentery. The water wasn't even remotely clean. They didn't have any idea where most illnesses came from. So the illnesses and poisoning, like that was done intentionally, just got conflated all the time. I really feel like at this point, he should just be like, you know what? Let's just stay in Newcastle. Yeah, really? Fuck this. <laughs> like, I often wonder how many cases of, like, how many poisoners got away with it because of all the other possibilities it could be. And, you know, as long as an autopsy said it was natural causes, you were scot-free. Oh, my God. Yeah. For, for this time period, I bet a ton. Yeah. Like I mentioned, those cases where an entire family dies from eating a stew or something. And I'm always like, hmm, but was it accidental? Do we know for sure? I bet a lot of it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And there were probably poisoning cases where it might have just been dysentery or food poisoning or something. And somebody got paranoid and assumed poison, too. So it could go both ways. It was just all too mixed up and too similar to, you know, to each other in, in symptoms and the progression of the illness and all that. So James nearly dies one night from the Martha's wonderful cooking. And the doctor tells Martha, do not give him anything to eat or drink. 
So what do you think Martha does? Oh, make some coffee. Absolutely. She gets him some food and some drink. And of course, immediately afterwards, he gets violently ill. New drinking game. Every time James gets sick, we drink. <laughs> I don't think our, our listeners would survive. I don't think they would either. That's a terrible idea. Let's not do that, guys. Let's not do that. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers, for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest wildest and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? (laughs) In the show notes. (laughs) I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. So for some reason, James telegraphs Mary Caroline to come home because, well, I guess he has like neighbors and coworkers taking care of him, and he probably feels like a little bit of a, you know, a burden or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I need my wife to take care of me. That's what you're here for. Yeah, right. You're feeling better. <laughs> Come take care of me and nurse me back to hell. I've been here living next to this woman whose food always makes me ill for some reason. So, when anyone but Martha gives him water, he's fine. He's fine. When Martha gives him water, he gets sick again. It's just, like, blaring. The, the klaxons are sounding. the damnedest thing. The flags are waving. There's a whole bunch of people pointing at her, saying, it's her, it's her. And James is just like, do-do-do-do-do, gonna She's have some so coffee. Lovely. She's so nice. She's such a lovely neighbor. Nurses me when I'm ill. So after a little over two weeks away, Mary Caroline returns. And this goes on and on. Over and over. Martha brings them food. They get sick. Mary Caroline makes food. They're fine. In James's account of this, all right, which is printed, it's like four full newspaper columns with this rinse and repeat happening again and again and again. So they have, in the newspaper article, they had the little subheads, you know, the little like secondary level heading for each section. And just the, the subheads, they're a wonderful example of how this was just a never ending cycle. Um, Mrs. Grinder gives him water. Mrs. Grinder furnishes milk. Witness again ill. Mrs. Grinder prepares supper. Mrs. Carruthers takes sick. Effects of ice water on witness. Veal soup. Renewal of former symptoms. Another circumstance. More sickness. More soup. More sickness. Alarming symptoms. Peaches and milk and ice water. More sickness. It's seriously, like, just using those subheads as, like, a narrative of what was going on really punches you in the face. Right. Yeah. 
He he. We have the virtue of twenty twenty in hindsight and all that. James didn't seem to have that, and um, just maybe was a little naive. I don't know. Yeah, but you know what? They're so mean to George, and they pick on him. Slow and simple-minded, um, James. <laughs> yeah, you've got you've got a point there. I'm not going to deny that. Nobody's calling James dumb, <laughs> and I feel like they should be. Like <laughs> maybe. Have you not noticed a pattern? Because one of the things about being an adult is knowing how to read a pattern and stop making the same mistakes over and over and over. That's how you learn. You make a mistake, and you're like, oh, and then you learn from it, and you don't do it again. Um, And, I mean, sometimes you're going to make the same mistake more than once, and that's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. But if you make the same mistake about 10 or 20 times, and you've learned nothing, then you know what? You need to stop slamming your head against the wall and (laughs) um, rethink your actions. Or maybe slam your head some more. I don't know. Something needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it was a really good thing that they, you know, they had such a nice, nurturing neighbor. Mary Caroline got very sick uh, soon after that final dinner. The illness progressed and got worse and worse. And despite what I'm sure were Martha's best efforts and her enthusiasm for nursing her neighbor, Mary Caroline died on August 1st, 1865. So... This raised some suspicions, and people were like, okay, yeah, this plus Jane Buchanan um, and some of Mary Caroline's belongings disappeared from her home just after her death. Mm -hmm. Who has easy access to her home? Hmm, Let me think. Now, for some reason, the way law enforcement worked, no, it just wasn't really very much developed in terms of actually having, like, systems that are replicated in every single city. So in this city, it seems like the mayor is in charge of the law enforcement stuff for some reason. To the mayor! And he says, uh, he tells James Carruthers to make a charge against Martha for larceny. So they're starting with that. When she's arrested, the house will be searched, and if they find poison, then they can bring some murder charges. They did find some of Mary Caroline's belongings, some small articles in uh, Martha's house. Martha made bail of $1,500 and went home. But whoever posted her bail uh, seemed a little suspicious of her because they posted two officers at her house all night watching the exits. Smart. Yeah, no, that makes sense. The officers stayed all night, and the next morning, two other officers were arresting her. But she'd somehow managed to escape. Now, George Grinder was there. He did end up getting arrested um, because they had... James Carruthers going through the house IDing his dead wife's stolen belongings. And also, George Grinder made some threats against James. So there was that. Uh, George said when they asked him where Martha was, he said, I took her to the city. Uh, We went to the Iron City Trust Company and withdrew 40 bucks. I gave it to her and she was going to go consult a lawyer. I mean, she's in trouble. It, It seems like a logical thing. Okay. And the, but the thing is, the papers say after all this, neither George nor Martha are aware that the murder charges are being pursued. Because keep in mind, it's still just the larceny. So after being missing for maybe four hours, she comes back to the house and is taken into custody. And uh, charges of attempted murder are read to her. Now, the attempted murder would be uh, James Brothers. 
I think they probably figure with the, you know, victim alive, we can maybe get a better shot at this. Maybe. So uh, this, of course, caused a big hubbub. Quote, her arrest has created great excitement in the neighborhood where she resides, and many of her neighbors are ready to testify to her attempts upon their lives. It is said that poison was placed in flour and other articles loaned by Mrs. Grinder, and that sudden cases of illness... Now, the rest is pretty ineligible and impossible to read. Um, so just uh, created such excitement some weeks ago caused by this woman spreading poison in the neighborhood is the best I was able to get out of that. It was very, a very bad copy of that newspaper. I hate that when that happens. It's an, I love it when I find like a good story and then the newspaper copy is terrible and almost illegible. I'm like, no, come on. So they decide that they are going to exhume Mary Caroline's body and they do that on August 31st. Um, a fun fact, they used a stone crock to carry the organs and other material for testing that they took from her body. Good choice. So they find arsenic and antimony, and the chemist says it is unmistakable. Now, he used uh, Marsh's system of analysis. If you go over to Detectives by the Decade, I have, uh, that's the other podcast I did for just a little while. Um, on the history of forensic science, and I have an, uh, an episode about him and a particularly fascinating murder case that he was, like, instrumental in solving and prosecuting. So, once they figure out all this out, the whole town practically descends on the mayor's office, and they're like, that bitch tried to poison me. So, uh, I'm going to have my say. Uh, the Pittsburgh Gazette tells us, quote, a score of living witnesses, neighbors of Mrs. Grinder, each of whom had sat at her table and been poisoned, appeared at the mayor's office and made their several statements, clearly demonstrating the fact that Mrs. Grinder had administered drugs or poison to them. And uh, pretty soon they're looking at any deaths that happened in her vicinity and questioning. There were quite a lot more. Yeah, there were quite a lot more. We're, we're going to get into, but the, the one that the whole neighborhood knew about was the child, the infant. They were like, oh no, sorry, a different infant, whole different infant. Uh, a child um, of a poor woman who took the baby into the grinder's house to warm it by the fire. Quote, the circumstances tend to establish that the child died from poison at the hands of Mrs. Grinder, but the case is overshadowed by others and no judicial investigation has yet been had. So they're looking at her more closely and they're looking into her history. And in her history, they look at some family members, like maybe some in-laws who had died recently somewhat. And uh, yeah, her two brothers-in-law, George's brothers, they, uh, they had a rough time of it. Now, the extended family had a few farms in Westmoreland County. Brothers Samuel and Jeremiah Grinder were both soldiers in 1864. Remember, the Civil War was going on then. Their rank, uh, they were both privates. Samuel was 28, Jeremiah was 24. Samuel was actually in the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. Now, in November or December of 1864, Samuel came home on furlough. Now, this was less than a year prior to the Carruthers murder. Um, he'd had part of a finger shot off in the Battle of the Wilderness the previous May. Gangrene had set in while he was at the hospital, so he was recuperating a little bit. Yep. Rough, rough go of it. 
So once he was almost healed, he left the homestead, but he went to the city into Pittsburgh and he stopped at his brother and sister-in-law's house. Well, yeah, he's, he's out on medical leave. He's feeling a little bit better and this might be his last chance to go visiting. Yeah, yeah, you wanna, you wanna see everybody and say goodbye. He'll be saying goodbye, all right. Uh, so uh, after a day or two, he got ill uh, at Martha's house and a doctor said he had, quote, a violent form of diphtheria. Quote, and th they had an, an interesting uh, discussion of the symptoms here. Strange to say, his throat was not in the least effective, affected, but his mouth and palate were very much swollen. And also, he was foaming at the mouth and vomiting. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do have a list of the symptoms of diphtheria. Uh, a thick gray membrane covering throat and tonsils, sore throat and hoarseness, swollen glands in the neck, difficulty breathing or rapid breathing, nasal discharge, fever and chills, and tiredness. So, not much vomiting in there. I didn't hear foaming at the mouth either. Yeah, I know. No, no swollen mouth and palate. It doesn't really seem to fit, but, you know, misdiagnosis was kind of just the doctor way back then. Isn't it still? <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. So, Samuel was pretty sure he knew what had made him sick. And he used the most cryptic way available to tell his family because his father and his sister had come to the grinder house to see him. He said, and see if you can figure this riddle out because I am stumped. Martha Grinder has poisoned me and will poison the whole Grinder family. Well, somebody's figured it out. Thank you, God. <laughs> right? And he figured it out right the fuck away and then told people. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, uh, his illness lasted from uh, a little while after he arrived on Wednesday to the following Sunday, and his loving sister-in-law was there to nurse him through it. Wouldn't let anyone else assist her, and he died on Sunday morning. The newspapers later give the death date as December 4th, but veterans' records say December 25th. Oh, that is a big difference. Uh-huh, and one of them is Christmas. The neighbor, no, not the neighbors, the newspapers say he died on a Sunday, and those were both Sundays, so really can't tell. I don't know. And record keeping was not great back then. Martha attended the funeral because, of course. Now, I mentioned that the sister and father had visited, George's sister and father. The sister's name was Charlotte, and uh, guess who also got sick while they were there? Oh, you don't say. She had some coffee at breakfast, but did, ate no food. And within 10 minutes, the symptoms kicked in. This was the day of the funeral. She loves poisoning people the day of a funeral. It really is a thing. It really is. It's almost like she's, she can't help herself or something. So poor Charlotte was so sick that rather than escort her brother's remains to his final resting place, she had to go home. And if I'm looking at the... Okay, so... They had their own family cemetery in Westmoreland County, um, and the Grinders do. If I'm looking at the right grave, she was only 14. There were several Charlottes in the family. None of them are listed as Samuel or George's sister, so it's a little confusing, but I'm pretty sure that she was the 14-year-old. So we don't know whether the family knew at this point that the other brother, Jeremiah, had died already. 
Uh, Martha sent some provisions to someone in the army during that time period, but no one knew who. Jeremiah was still at camp near Alexandria, Virginia. I'm going to be there in a couple weeks. Um, hopefully I won't get sick and um, die in a hospital after six days. So, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so, a little strange. A little harder to pinpoint and say for sure. It feels more like hearsay-ish. You know, she sent somebody in the army some provisions. Well, like everyone was in the army, you know. So, there were other tales told. Family members who brought babies to the house who were afflicted, even though they were perfectly healthy when they arrived. At least four, and some of them on multiple occasions, uh, they tended to be diagnosed with diphtheria. But in that list of symptoms, I did not see anything about having a hole burned through your tongue. Right. One of the children had a hole burned through their tongue. And honestly, who poisons kids? Yeah. Like Really? I know. They're children. Babies. She would, she would poison infants. So uh, Mr. Grinder was invited once to tea. Uh, it was called an urgent invitation, but, quote, didn't trust the tender mercies of the fiend. Now, a local doctor who had a lot of patients in this area said he had seen several come through after receiving Martha's hospitality, including her neighbors, with symptoms of poisoning. He managed to save them, but the newspaper opined of their. Uh, but the newspaper opined that her poisoning operations had gone on for years, and this is uh, the wonderful way they put this. Perhaps no complete record of their extent and fatality will even be written, except upon the book of the recording angel. We're so dramatic. I guess it is people dying. I guess I should take it a little seriously. I <laughs> I have some information. Okay. I also have a death certificate for Samuel Grinder. His date of death was misreported because I have in my notes December 4th, but you are 100% correct. According to his death certificate, Perfect. December 25th. There we go. And I have a little fun fact that I found tracking down his death certificate. Amber's literally doing this right now, like as we're recording. This, this is what I do. This here. is like, this is on the fly research. I love it. So uh, he, he was 28 years old when he passed and he was buried in Hyde Park, Westmoreland County, that is now known as Grinder Cemetery. Oh, oh, he was born at, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Grinder Cemetery. He's a grinder. Yeah. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I really love the idea of family cemeteries, like, on their own land, usually, where, you know, like, that, that it's not something we do nowadays, but uh, it was just a, always a really kind of quaint thing to me, keeping keeping your lost loved ones kind of close. Yeah, parents Andrew and Catherine. I don't see Jeremiah in here. I'm going to go on a little hunt for Jeremiah. Okay, well, Jeremiah's was a little weird because he was down in uh, Alexandria. I know, but it, it's not listed as a sibling for him, which is strange. On, like, Find a Grave or... Yeah, where on Find a Grave. Yeah, Find listed. a Grave doesn't always have a full list of siblings. Actually, I, I generally assume that I should add one to three to any listing of Find a Grave siblings. <laughs> so... Love it. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. No. Um, so that quote I gave you guys earlier... Um, I'm going to finish it now. I will uh, refresh your memories. She would sit up half the night, waiting upon a sick patient and bestowing every attention which kindness could suggest. 
only to get an opportunity to place the poison chalice to their lips. So you see why I couldn't give that whole quote away at the beginning. It would have given it all away, even though we've been giving it away all along. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we know. We know what's going on. So as part of the investigation after the Carruthers' death, the coroner goes out to uh, George's family homestead in Leechburg, about 30 miles from Martha and George's house. And of course, the reporters go with him. We just take the reporters everywhere. Why the hell not? Yeah. So Mr. Grinder has uh, a couple of nice farms and some investments. He makes a good income. And, uh, oh, I do have, I, I have Jeremiah's death date, if that helps. Nope, I already found his death certificate, okay. too. He is at the Grinder Cemetery, so he, he at least ended up there. Uh, but he doesn't have anyone listed under, like, with him. But mm. I also found his death certificate, which has it listed as November 16th, but at least it's much closer. Okay, yeah, because my date that I have is November 15th, so, I mean, we're right there. It's in the same area that works. It's so very close. Yeah. And now I'm just searching through the entire cemetery. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few grinders in there. Lots of grinders. So, uh... Now, the brothers' graves are there, like we said. Um, and they had just died, like, three weeks apart from each other. Which is just god-awful. And right at the holidays, too. It's, like, right before Thanksgiving and then on Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah. There's something a little weird there, too. It seems like something about big events. Funerals and holidays. There, something gets her gets her motor running there. I don't know. It's horrifying. Or you know what? Maybe she just really loves big events, and so we want to make more funerals so everybody comes back to visit. <laughs> there you go. Oh, goodness. Just have a party, for God's sakes. We love parties. But don't poison the punch, please. So uh, the baby's grave uh, is in that same family cemetery that the infant I mentioned earlier, who had died uh, soon after going to her house, was said to be a month old. Uh, when the baby died in May 1865, and the Grinder family said they were pretty certain the baby was poisoned, so that kind of backed that up some. They figured, they had a theory. They said, we think she's trying to bump off all the heirs until George is the last man standing so that he can inherit everything. Killing the baby doesn't really factor into that now, does it? Well, we don't want anybody else getting a cut. I guess not. So the Pittsburgh Gazette tells us that if all this bears out, quote, the facts which we glean from members of the family in reference to the intriguing designs of Martha Grinder will serve to brand her as the most infamous woman that ever existed. Which I always love seeing those things about murderers that, um, like, have, have been forgotten by history. I mean, I'd never heard of Martha Grinder. <laughs> There's so many murderers, I'm telling you what. It's really amazing when we first started this show, and I was like, oh, gosh, I wonder if we'll ever run out. Nope. We still have a million cases that I still want to get to. <laughs> and I'm finding more every day, I swear to God. I'm not even putting them on the list anymore because I'm like, eh, opening a whole nother browser window is just too much effort. <laughs> I'm just bookmarking. So now people and the press especially are really lapping this up. Um, this was a, a little note. Uh, as I mentioned, she's, she does start being called Mrs. G in the press and in the public. So this is a little note about some amusements that you can entertain yourself with in Pittsburgh one weekend. Oh, no. 
At the Opera House, Uncle Tom's Cabin will constitute the performance of the matinee this afternoon. In the evening, a repetition of the Female Detective, which succeeded admirably on its first production last night, together with the Female Poisoner, and then in parentheses, not Mrs. G. Not Mrs. G. <laughs> not Mrs. G. And uh, George is arrested too. He's arrested as an accessory and then for murder. And uh, when they... Okay, so this is the moment of George being both smart and stupid. They brought him from his house to the coroner's jury. And he basically was like, well, I'm going to get locked up. So uh, I better better secure the house. Make sure nobody can steal all the stuff my wife stole from the people she killed. He didn't say that last part, but he said the first part. About, well, I'm going to be gone for a while. I might not come back ever. It's just, it's like, okay, locking down the house, smart. Saying you're doing it because you think you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life or maybe, you know, hanged. Not smart, dude. Not smart. No. So there is a trial. Uh, it's kind of fun because we're still in the period where the, the court is called the Oyer and Terminer, which is an archaic form of, you know, the name for the court. And they get all uh, bombastic and old-timey and just a little bit threatening in their proceedings. So the sheriff tells the crier, they have a crier in court, I know, to make a proclamation for the jury. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All you good men who have been summoned and returned to serve as traverse jurors answer to your names at first call on pain and peril that you may fail therein. You know, if we told people there'd be pain and peril if they didn't show up for jury duty, maybe we'd get more people doing their civic duty. You'd definitely get a lot more masochists to show up. That's for sure. Amber just got a little excited at the idea of pain and peril. <laughs> you know what? Maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm down with some jury duty. <laughs> it, I have all this transcript stuff because the Pittsburgh Gazette did practically a full transcript of the jury selection it's like they never heard of a trial before. I mean, it literally is all the minutiae day by day, because it took a while. Now, she was tried just for Mary Caroline's murder, and uh, James testified. They had him talk about the exhumation um, at first, just to prove that she was dead and it was her body that they had exhumed. And when they asked how he identified it, he said, well, she wore uh, the pin that we buried her with on her breast with her father's likeness on it. I know. Several chemists involved in the testing and the analysis of the remains testified. And they do frequently bring up this one case fairly recent, nine years prior uh, that the principal had been executed. This was in England. It's the one I mentioned um, with the... the Marsh Method and Alfred Swain Taylor. So it was William Palmer. He was called the Prince of Poisoners. And it just goes to show you how what a landmark this case was in forensic history that they're still bringing it up almost a decade later. Yeah. So it was uh, Alfred Swain Taylor's work that uh, brought about the scientific breakthrough that took Palmer down. And uh, so we had the Prince of Poisoners, and Alfred Swain Taylor is known as the father of British forensic forensic medicine. I don't know if it's going to be a problem that I'm losing the ability to talk, but I suspect it might. <laughs> well, you know, if, if half of your face goes, I'll, I'll know that you're having a stroke. You can just read my show notes. <laughs> I'll just sit here. 
But yes, there is a Detectives by the Decade episode on that, in which I'm sure I probably spoke properly, or at least edited out the parts that I didn't. Woo! <laughs> right? They had other testimony, um, some from neighbors who'd gotten sick when Martha fed or cared for them, doctors and chemists on the stand, and also the servant Martha had sent off to the store on an errand to buy poison. Uh, of course. Yeah. We can't get our hands dirty by buying it ourselves. Right? So finally, this case does go to the jury, and the papers tell us that most of the information of what's happening in the jury room is based on rumors. Uh, there's a rumor that they started at 10 for acquittal, and then switched it all around at 1 a.m. Another account tells us that the jury was taking a, a close look at the evidence, even though from the very first ballot they agreed on conviction. So it seems like there's we don't have a clear view of what's going on in the jury room. We do have this wonderful moment where the Pittsburgh Gazette excoriates any juror who would dissent in this case, um, anybody who would not be for conviction from the start, but they really, they really laid in. So uh, we may add that the juror will scarcely ever again be troubled in his official capacity in protecting any interests in which the Commonwealth is concerned. And if we, he does, may we be there to see if he should take it into his head at any time to leave us and the balance of the body of the county, we hope he will not fail to leave us a lock of his hair, and we promise him to forthwith send it to Barnum as evidence of the existence of a juror who, like Thomas of old, would believe nothing he could not see and handle. So they're calling him a doubting Thomas, and they're saying that he's such a freak that uh, he should be in Barnum Circus, essentially, <laughs> just for, you know, wanting to discuss. <laughs> wanting actual proof of things. Yeah, yeah. How dare he? So, uh... I'm guessing he was an atheist because he, he could not see or hold God. There you go. So they give the verdict. It is a guilty verdict. Her reaction... Okay. The judge motioned her to sit down. She received the verdict with the utmost indifference and appeared as unmoved and unconcerned as though she were a mere spectator. She seemed perfectly passive. And the only sign of motion or emotion was her toying with the fringe of her shawl between her fingers. It was a most remarkable exhibition of womanly fortitude and proves that she is possessed of an extraordinary spirit. What wonder that such a woman could witness unmoved the death agonies of her victims. She seems alike destitute of fear, pity, or remorse and stands unparalleled in the annals of crime. That paragraph needed to work its way through its emotions because... It was, she's an extraordinary spirit of a woman. And I'm like, what are you doing? She killed a bunch of people, including a baby. <laughs> like, and then they're like, no, no, yeah, she's a terrible criminal, blah, 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 blah. But you know. So I, I have like a little bit from a newspaper that's similar to that, but not as fancy pantsy. So it was talking about how Mr. Carruthers went through the, the details of the death of his wife. And um, he was up on stand and, quote, and a voice broken by sobs recounted the horrible sufferings of his dead wife, and the court and jury and assembly were almost overcome with emotion. The only dry eye in the room were those of Martha Grinder. <laughs> and when at last the verdict guilty of murder and the first degree sounded in her ears, she heard it without a sign of emotion. 
and went back to her cell apparently without trembling in a single nerve. Yeah, she really seemed to just be like, meh, okay. And you know, it's a death sentence. She's going to swing. So she said, um, she had something to say. Uh, one thing that she said was, I loved to see death in all its forms and phases and left no opportunity to gra gratify my tastes for such sights. Could I have had my own way? Probably I should have done more. So she's basically saying, I love killing people, love watching it, and uh, wish I had done some more. Yep. Yep. She does have kind of a, a confession. Uh, this was given to members of the press after her execution. In view of my departure in a few hours from Earth, I want to say that I acknowledge my guilt in the case of Mrs. Carruthers and also in the case of Miss Buchanan, but I am innocent of all charges made against me in the papers for poisoning people. But bad as I have been, I feel that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me, and through his mercy I hope to find an entrance into heaven. <coughs> Bloody likely. <laughs> I die without any hard feelings to anyone, forgiving all as I hope to be forgiven. Mr. Stewart, you know, she talks about people who have been kind to her in her time in jail and everything. Mr. Stewart and Mr. White apparently were just great dudes. Uh, may God be good to them. If I had been faithful to my church duties, it would have been different with me now. But I am thankful that God is so good as to return to me now that I do come back to him. So, um. She also said, I am a great, great sinner, but Christ is a great, great savior. <laughs> wow. She does have a little bit of a way of uh, with words, but no, I don't actually buy that at all for her. Uh, nope, nope, nope. So um, that's actually, that's all I have. Do you have anything? I'm, I'm sure there's some stuff at the end that I missed because I kind of uh, So I do actually. Um, so the day before her execution, she almost died. She uh, had somehow managed to sneak in some strychnine and try to poison herself. Whoopsie doodle. What a twist! <laughs> well, she loves watching death, experiencing it in the same way or similar to the people that she killed. But might was, have been a thrill for her. I don't know, but it was only through the most strenuous effort that they were actually able to save her life so they could hang her the next day. <laughs> I also wonder how much of this was about control, not to sit here and psychoanalyze her. <laughs> Yeah, just the fact that she, it seems like she was trying to take back that control, kill herself before they could kill her. Well, so you remember, we just did a case the last time we recorded where the guy was sentenced to hang and actually hung himself in his cell before they could hang him, which actually turned out to be a good thing for him. You're going to have to listen to the tiny if you want to know more. Yeah, that's over on the Patreon. <laughs> Patreon.com. Links in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so yes, she was, she was actually hanged in Pittsburgh, January 19th of 1866, and she walked to the gallows, mind you, the day after she tried to kill herself, with a smile. Wow. She walked out fucking smiling. They put a white hood over her face. The trap door sprang at 1.15 p.m. The noose had gotten damp. Hmm. During the day, because you guys, anyone here that lives in Pennsylvania or around Pennsylvania, um, yeah, especially by the, the three rivers. Yeah, yeah, rain is a thing. Um, and just general yeah. dampness mm -hmm. is, is totally a thing. I mean, this is January. So it might have, uh, like, snowed and then thawed. 
So the rope had gotten damp and the rope did not slide properly. And as a result, she got to struggle for several minutes hanging in the noose before finally becoming still. She had uh, worn a fine merino dress of brown color fitted loosely at the waist with a high neck huh? <laughs> and flowing sleeves fastened at the wrists. Her feet were encased in white hose and slippers. Yeah, white and brown. I don't like it. White and brown. Cream. She's a witch. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, unless you have anything else, that is Martha Grinder, great, great aunt of one of our uh, listeners. Um, I do have one other just fun fact for you. Okay. A Martha Grinder fun fact. I love fun facts. So Martha Grinder executed in Pittsburgh. There was only one other woman that was executed in Pittsburgh in a space of less than eight years from our lovely Martha. And those were the only two women ever executed in Pittsburgh. So she is half of the Pittsburgh female executions. Wow. <laughs> That is bonkers. So if you did not know, now you know. Hooray! Well, if she wanted to be special, there she is. All right, I have a recipe for you. A recipe? It's a weird one. It's one of the ones I got out of that um, that mutton book. Um, <laughs> so uh, what to do with the mutton? Uh, this is Tums sauce. Take rather less than half an ounce of cayenne pepper, one ounce of pounded sugar candy, six small shallots, six anchovies, six cloves, all these ingredients to be pounded, one quart of vinegar, one gill and a half of soy, and a gill and a half of mushroom ketchup. Stir the whole together and shake it up frequently. In 10 days, it will be fit for use and then let it stand and pour off the clear into small bottles. The thick is good for hashes, etc. I think that's the solid versus the um, liquid. Uh, cover the corks of the bottles with resins. Uh, I have no idea what that is. That is a weird sauce. I don't understand what's happening. Um, I don't understand why we're using sugar candy. I mean, was, is that a replacement for sugar? Maybe. That's what, if we're grinding it all up, I would say that that's a replacement for sugar. I don't know what the hell mushroom ketchup is. Oh, you see mushroom ketchup. You see like a couple different um, varieties of ketchup in the old-timey newspapers. I never look because mushrooms gross me out, so... I'm just not interested, but I'll, I'll find a recipe and send it so to you. So is it just like the same as like regular tomato ketchup where you just take like vinegar and sugar and instead of tomatoes, mushrooms? I'm not sure, but maybe. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Let me try looking it up. It's definitely never been something that uh, I was like, oh, I want to make that. It... But this this makes sense to me in a way. So with the soy sauce... And the, the sweetness, the sugary with the vinegar and uh, maybe like a, a sour or umami from the mushroom ketchup. I feel like this could be an okay sauce. The anchovies are still used in Caesar salads. Like that, that is an, a flavoring that, that people use. Um, I guess so, in the UK they, uh, they do uh, mushroom ketchup. Um, so yeah, mushrooms instead of tomatoes essentially. Yeah, I know, uh, what is it, Philippines do banana ketchup, huh. which is interesting. It does. Uh, this is a homemade mushroom on the Wikipedia page. Homemade mushroom ketchup does not look pleasant at all. I would never oh, want to eat that. Oh, my. No, that that is uh, looks like something very specific, and it's uh, supposed to happen uh, long after you eat. 
Oh. Uh, probably <laughs> after an illness when yeah. your body is trying to clean you out. Maybe when you've been poisoned. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when you've been poisoned. So um, perhaps the mushroom ketchup recipe was a uh, a good choice. Yeah, <laughs> right. I was really trying to find peaches and cream, but there's only a couple 1865 cookbooks available on the archives. And I really wanted to do something from 1865. And I also wanted to do something that was a little weird and kind of something we're not used to. Yeah, but also, like, peaches and cream, the the recipe it's, is kind of in the title. It's right there, yeah. Like, I was hoping maybe there was some variation, but since there wasn't anything in that mutton book, I, I didn't have anything. Peaches and cream, and if you're feeling frisky, put a little salt on it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and we have a new patron shout-out. Welcome to the Patreon, Leah. Hi, Leah. Hello, Leah. So, uh, what you doing this week, Amber? I am um, losing my mind. I knew um, that was coming. I knew you were going to say that because we have the same mind. Uh, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing this week, but I will tell everyone a quick little fun story. So uh, I was watching uh, a cooking show, right? I, I like cooking shows. I watch very little TV, but if I watch TV, that is what I choose to watch. And so they are introducing the contestants for this cooking show. And this dad is like, I cook for my daughter. She's my whole world, and I love her so much. And my kids are watching this with me. And my seven-year-old daughter goes, where's her mom? I bet she's dead. That's going around these days, especially with moms. Y'all, I've never been so scared for my life. I texted everybody to let them know that this was said, and if I should die in my sleep, she didn't. <laughs> no ambiguity, no vagueness, no. If I die in my sleep, it was that child. Oh, 100%. It's going around these days, especially with moms. Ah. And I was just like, yo, sweetheart, one, what the fuck? Two, uh, they're probably just divorced. And she's like, nope, dead. <laughs> she's going to be a little goth. <laughs> she's going to be taking this podcast over for us one day, I would bet. <laughs> After she murders us, yes. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> That's how you get podcasts. Right? <laughs> I mean... Scott is still alive and well. He's fine. Stop asking uncomfortable questions. No. <laughs> so what are you doing this week? Um, uh, I have actually been working on a new little side project. I don't know how, what fruit it's going to bear, but hopefully at the very least it'll give me a couple of avenues for old, tiny, crimey episodes or even full episodes for the, the main feed here. I started looking for decapitations and mutilations from 1900 to 1940. Okay. I mean, I know it's a broad spectrum, but I just I just know there's serial killers out there who are operating under the radar and who got away with it. And I just want to find some cases that tie oh, together. Oh, you're doing another Aurora. I'm doing you? another Aurora, yeah. Some of them are even around Chicago. Oh. <laughs> it might even be around the same time period. I was like, how did I miss that? You minx. <laughs> I know. So, so yeah, I have, um, I have in Canva a whole, I'll actually show it to you right now, a whole thing uh, on the whiteboard. Uh, it's just all these newspaper articles of just horrible, horrible murders. It's going to be very small because I'm trying to save as much space as possible. That is very small. Here. It reminds me of high school. <laughs> mm, there it is. Married life. I like this one where they found, um, they found <laughs> it, it, the first uh, headline on like June 11th or something was 
a headless mystery. Mutilated body of a woman found near Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And the next day, missing head found. Hooray! They were like, oh, yay, we found it, guys. We're good. <laughs> it was just in the tree. Yeah, yeah, we found it. We got it. I love that you put them side by side. Oh, yeah, I needed to keep those together. So, so yeah, and then I have, like, the links to all the cases and everything, the original articles. I do have a spreadsheet. That's the moment I knew we were in trouble. Yeah, I'm not surprised, but I, for one, love decapitations. My favorite is when they find a headless body and then a head, and they don't match. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. That is always my favorite. One thing was I was trying different search terms on newspapers.com, and I discovered that decapitation or decapitated is actually a really depressing route to go because you run into a lot of auto accidents and train accidents where that happened. Oh. Sometimes multiple in the same newspaper back to back. Oh, People were just losing their heads left and right in accidents. It was terrible. And it got kind of depressing. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to look for mutilated bodies. That's much cheerier. That is much cheerier. <laughs> but it's much more pinpointed and you're not going to get all those outliers that don't really have anything to do with what you're looking for. So I had to kind of work with it and narrow it down to find the right search terms. But right now, I'm something was going on. There were definitely union men being murdered. Union men. Yes. Like railroad union or just anyone in a union. Like just a variety of unions, like, you know, electrical workers union and, and so on and so forth. All the various industries that they had. There are several men who turn up dead and they're identified by their union card. And that feels very much like a message and uh, a scare tactic. So that sounds like a very much a government scare tactic, frankly. Or, or that, yeah. I did find a whole article um, that was all about how unions were the work of Satan. So, um, <laughs> really, anything that they don't like is Satan, Satan, Satan. It gets old after a while. I know. Think of something new to blame it on. Yes, please. Unicorns. I love unicorns, but you can still blame it on unicorns, and that's fine. You know what? My favorite unicorn tales are where unicorns are like murderous creatures. Oh, I have a good book series for you. Oh, I love it. Like, <laughs> I think I've actually, I think because of you, I know about this. Uh, probably. <laughs> um, but, yeah, those are always like... Yes, you are the one that introduced me to unicorns or murderers. <laughs> yeah. That was totally you. Of course and it was me. Who I have loved unicorns ever since. I was not a huge unicorn person. But once she knew that they could gore you with their horns, she was on board. Yeah, you are the one now. Now <laughs> that it's like all clicking in my head because like... It was many years ago because yes. we are old. And, and the unicorns really liked like innocent women and would protect them by... Killing all of the bad men. Like, it was amazing. This I was is like, right up yes, Amber's alley. <laughs> I want a war unicorn to just, like, ride beside me and just, like, gore anybody that pisses me off. <laughs> like, I want this in my life. Yeah, that was my fault. I did that. <laughs> so that's just what I'm going to be working on. Um, and that's along the way I find interesting articles and I put them up on the social media. It's, uh, it's very entertaining. I would recommend everybody come and, uh, and take a look. I, you muted it. I know. You saw me mute it, and it's still making noise. Discord, shut up. Maybe you got added. I bet you got added. Oh, maybe it'll do it if I get added. Yeah. Let me over here. Nope, I did not get added. Huh. 
So yeah, I don't know. But um, but yeah, I'm going to be working on that and it's it's fun. I can share this document with you if you want to ever just take a look. I mean, you can just look for patterns or you can, you know, like pick a case and use it as a tiny because most of them I have one little snippet from a newspaper. If I find anything later about it, I just kind of file it away in my head. I too have plans. <laughs> you have plans too. But if you if you want to look for patterns, that would be helpful. <laughs> just because there's so much. It's like I'm That's overwhelmed. That's what we do as, a, as adults. <laughs> it really is, we yes. We look for patterns. So, all right. Um, with that, we are going to say that you, dear listeners, should, and okay, you should find the murderer in your family history and then yeah. tell us about them and then we'll do an episode and, you know, talk about it. You can also still send us your hometowns and we will do uh, a case from there, from the old-timey newspapers. So, yeah, um, that you can send to oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can also send your murderous ancestors there. Try not to send messages on Facebook or Instagram because they just get kind of lost and I haven't, I don't even, I'm not even sure how to get to them or how to get notifications for them. That's not me being old. That's Facebook being stupid. I maintain. So if you uh, comment on the Facebook page, we can both see it and that's cool. Uh, if you send messages, we don't know where they go. Yeah, exactly. They just go into the void, into the ether, but uh, the old timey crimey Gmail, that'll work too, so... So yeah, uh, do send us those because this was really fascinating. And thank you to our wonderful listener who came over to the Facebook page and said, hey, my great-great-aunt was bonkers and murdered a bunch of people. That was awesome and we loved it. Yes, yes, this is so much fun, especially knowing that we're doing a case about something, like, you know, that is related to somebody, you know? That's just, it's, it's really cool. So super cool that you have a great-great-aunt that murdered a bunch of people. <laughs> so happy that you have murderers in your family. Also, um, do you like to host potlucks? <laughs> Just curious. Just curious. So, all right. Uh, and we will see you later. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are uh, State Killings in the Steel City, The History of the Death Penalty in Pittsburgh by William S. Lofquist, Ph.D., The Pittsburgh Gazette, The Pittsburgh Daily Commercial, Find a Grave, and Murderpedia. My sources for this were StateKillingsInTheSteelCity.org by Bill Lofquist, <laughs> Listverse by Adam R. Ramos, The Book Forgotten Tales of Pittsburgh by Thomas White, University of Cincinnati Magazine by Michael Miller, the Cinemaholic by Viswa Venipali, uh, newspapers.com. Thank you, you Chris, Chris Garcia. Garcia. Chicago Evening Post. <laughs> <laughs>